This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week on The Unseen, we welcome journalist, researcher, and author Cheryl Costa. Together with her spouse, Linda, they wrote the 2017 book, UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015. Now, Cheryl is the first to admit that this is an extremely dry book, and at one point in our talk, she says it has all the charm of a bank ledger. Now, yes, that might be true, but the story of this monumental project is extremely interesting. And by the end of our talk, we touch on how this mystery, the mystery of the UFOs, overlaps with expanded human consciousness. This was a wonderful conversation, and we went a bit longer than maybe we should have, so I'm going to keep this introduction short. This interview was recorded on Friday, July 19th, 2019. Please enjoy. Cheryl, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. You're welcome. I first heard of you from the New York Times article, and that was back in 2017. But before we jump to that, uh, let's talk about your work at the Syracuse News. Uh, well, it's Syracuse New Times. Oh, excuse me, New Times, yep. Uh, their paper had been around 50 years. Uh, in fact, they quite literally went out of business uh, a week ago. I, I saw that when I was searching out. I just saw that it was closing up. Well, it was one of those uh, city free city paper kind of things. And they had a, a they they pretty much existed on advertising money that came in from the organizations that wanted to you know let you know about their bar or their particular golf course or whatever you know uh, the show or whatever and they made the whole thing work over fifty years and then uh, that, that advertising revenue started falling off and uh, I saw a cutback back about oh, about a year ago in fact actually. Three years ago, there was a cutback, and as I understand it, uh, I, w- I thought I would be on the chopping block, and uh, I actually heard from a former editor last evening, as a matter of fact, in a conversation, and he said, you were never on the chopping block. You, you were the only article that was pulling page views greater than the, the, the rest of it. That does not surprise me. That does not surprise me. But that's great. Yes. Well, well, you know, it was funny. When I, I went to a bunch of different editors in upstate New York in uh, late 2012, early 2013, and I got chased out, yelled out of their offices, things like that, escorted to the door by security, as they say. And you were proposing a, a, like a just a, a weekly UFO report. Uh, yeah, a UFO column. And uh, – and I, I gave them examples and said, hey, these are real reports from people. I just punched them up and cleaned them up a little bit from an editing standpoint. And they uh, they didn't want to talk to me. I went to go see Larry Dietrich. Now, he had been the senior copy editor over at the Syracuse um, – at the uh, Post Standard newspaper. That's the big powerhouse newspaper in the area. And uh, we had had a buyout around 2012, 2013. So he went across the street to the Syracuse New Times. I shouldn't say across the street, but down the street, and um, became their editor-in-chief. So I reached out to him since everybody, nobody else wanted to talk to me. And it was a weekly paper. I thought, eh, you know. But I went and talked to him. And first thing he said to me is, is uh, let's talk first. So we talked. 
and just a conversation about UFOs. And this guy seemed to be as well-read as I was on the topic matter. And so at the end of that conversation, he said, I'm sympathetic. And he said, okay, we'll try you for a month. Okay. And it was kind of like the tone of uh, in the movie, The Princess Bride, you know, uh, the dread pirate Robert saying to Wesley, I'll most likely kill you in the morning kind of thing. And uh, he, he said, I'll probably take you off in a, after about a month. <laughs> about four or five weeks later, I get a phone call from him. Come on over. We've got to talk. I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> you know, it's over with. And I get it. I, I'm late for the meeting because the, they were tearing up the parking lot. And I, I get into the meeting five minutes late, and everybody's sitting around this uh, this uh, uh, conference table. And I come walking in. He stopped what he was saying, points at me, and says, there's our rock star. And this is what I'm finding, too, is that the stuff is very popular. And there's, a, I guess, a real danger of it being exploited. I mean, you know, there's plenty of, how to say it, there's plenty of bad UFO reporting out there. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> there's a lot of horrible UFO Call that clickbait, but yes. And I've I've read through a bunch of your stuff. It's got a wide range of how, the subjects you're reporting. Well, I started out purely with sightings, okay, and uh, going back, digging back. I had people say, "Hey, how come you just did a story about a fifteen or twenty year old sighting?" And I said, "It was never reported in the paper, so it's essentially unreported news." And I'm just reporting the stuff that people say they saw years ago because we know back since '68. Most papers aren't publishing UFO material, you know, or people's local UFO. In fact, I went to the, the paper I worked at was the Post Standard at the time. And um, I've always been a freelance with the Syracuse New Times. Okay, so those articles belong to me. So when the paper was shutting down, I got to harvest them off the server. They're, they're mine. And uh, uh, we managed to harvest 228 of about 250, 260 articles. And we have found another way to find – we found someplace else that was archiving those first six months. Of our, we had a server crash at the paper, and we lost about six months' worth of articles. That was maybe 20 articles. So we found a way to recover those as well. So what we're, Linda and I are going to do is we're going to um, publish the New York Sky's uh, archive of articles as a, a print-on-demand book. It will be available as uh, Kindle. It will be available as a print-on-demand book. Again, we're going to self-publish. So, the, so a book of blog posts. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. It, they're, they're, the average article was somewhere along the line of about as little as 400, but most of the time they were running in the range of uh, 550 to 750 words. So uh, added up, that it, it barely bakes 100, 120,000 or something like that. So it doesn't have many more pages than a, a reasonably good crime novel. So uh, we're probably going to print it that way. We're, we're cleaning up some of the minutiae that is in the post. From, we actually took them off the actual edited versions that were on this thing versus the, my original copy. Okay, so uh, we're excited about doing that. And like I said, we've recovered most of the articles, and we're in the process of trying to recover the last maybe twenty or thirty. You saw a UFO at the age of twelve. I would love to hear that story. Um, it was a, a late August afternoon, Sunday. Uh, we had visited a, uh, an uncle and aunt up in the farm district uh, in Savona, New York. Population is only a couple of hundred people. And we were coming down off the hill, dirt road. Uh, and see, being August, it was, the corn was higher than the car. Okay. And we're coming down off the hill, and my mom has my dad stop and pull off the road a little bit. And then she points out into a clear blue western sky, and there's this big silver ball parked out there like a rock. 
and give you an idea how big it was. If you put your arm out and look at your little fingernail, that's about as big as it was. Okay. And uh, she told me, well, NASA in 65, NASA was only about six, seven years old. And um, maybe it's something the Air Force is doing. Maybe it's something NASA is doing. Then she suggested to the 12-year-old, and the to- my brother and sister were toddlers, so they really weren't in it. Um, she said, might be people from another world. And that fascinated me. And uh, so we talked about it a little bit. And my father got the car back on the road. We got down to the bottom of the hill, turned, turned left, and got onto the state tar road, as they say. And I crawled up in that big window of that old Chevy Impala. And just sat there and watched it, you know, and I kept wondering, who are you? Who are you? Why are you here? And when they decided to go, when that thing decided to go, it was like you see with the the Star Trek movies, gone. You know, you saw like a little bit of a streak when that thing decided to leave and it was gone. And that changed me. So mom, mom and I, you know, mom, mom, when you're a teenager, mom is stupid. So mom and I got actually rel- relatively close. Uh, we hardly speak anymore because on other, we're estranged on other issues. But I can still call her up and have a good UFO conversation. I can't talk to her about anything else, but I can have a UFO conversation with her. And uh, so we we talked. You know, I, I started going to the library and getting books. She started going to the library books, and you know, she she'd read one of Frank Edwards' books or uh, Jack Anderson's book or something like that. And we had other. There weren't a lot of them around, but. The few that were were being written by journalists, and uh, so we were very familiar with this stuff. And um, our copy of Von Danigan's Ancient Aliens, she dog-eared on the top of the book. I dog-eared on the bottom. Our book was destroyed, you know, <laughs> from all that kind of thing. But uh, I went in the Air Force right out of high school, and I mean right out of high school, about six weeks after we graduated. And uh, a year later, I was in Vietnam. Cameron Bay, Vietnam, and uh, I was in telephone communications. I was a telephone line person. I climbed telephone poles. People shoot at you on those things. Um, but Christmas Eve, 1971, uh, a friend of mine and I were walking down to the base chapel. Now, Cameron Bay is a big sandbar. Okay, You, you could look across the, the bay, and it was all jungle over there, but where we were, was like, it was just sand. Okay. In fact, they issued us special boots just for being able to walk around on sand and things. And uh, we were walking down to the base chapel to go to midnight mass for something to do. Uh, I, I had already dropped being a Catholic a couple of years before, but, you know, tradition, Christmas Eve, you know, go to midnight mass, you know. So we were going walking down. There in the western sky, right below Constellation Taurus, we saw this streak going across this, you know, gazillion stars in the sky kind of night. And the street going, and both of us kind of look at it, and it stopped. And we sat there, wait a minute, that thing stopped. Yeah, I know. You know, and the conversation was, well, it can't be a helicopter. They don't fly that fast. But jets don't stop in midair. And then I said, well, you know, having done a lot of reading about UFOs, I said, well, um, Tom, maybe it's going to start dancing around like a fairy. Darn if it didn't. Zigzag, zigzag, boom, 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 up and down, left and right, and then gone and i dare say neither one of us had our minds on midnight mass when we got to church that's so fascinating now this is something that comes up over and over again where people will actually say stuff right in the moment of seeing a ufo and the ufo will react as if if as some sort of communication oh yeah 
Oh yeah, big time. Um, Doctor Doctor Valet will tell you about that. You know, they seem to they know when we're watching them. They're plugged into some level of consciousness, and they know when we're we actually see them. I have a funny story, and it was it's uh, I was lying in my back under the stars. I was camping with a friend. It was I was living out west at the time, and it was lovely weather and up in the mountains and trillions and trillions of stars. This was in Wyoming. No tent, just a lovely cloudless night. And as the sun had set, you know, you could kind of see and trace the uh, satellites. And those are pretty obvious. And then, you know, we kind of kind of watched them and said, oh, there's another satellite there and there's another. And then both of us at the same time kind of pointed to one and said, well, that one doesn't, I guess that might be a satellite, doesn't seem quite right. And we both recognized there was something a little odd about this one. It was much brighter. It was just kind of cruising across the sky. And now I had um, worked in uh, advertising in the 80s and I worked on children's advertisements. And one of the things I worked on was My Little Pony. And I, I don't know how many hundreds of My Little Pony commercials I worked on. I was doing art direction and storyboards and stuff. But the little tagline from every My Little Pony commercial was a little girl saying, I love you, My Little Pony. So I'm laying there. It's this lovely night in the summer in Wyoming under the stars. And this little dot is cruising across the sky. And we're both looking at it. And I go, I love you, My Little UFO. And this thing flashed in a way that was like an old-time flash bulb. And it literally burned, like, you know how you get the little burn in the retina of your eyes for just that moment? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I did it six times, and it did it every time. And it was the funniest thing. It was so playful and so kind of, I don't know how to say it, like sort of dorky that we were out there. (laughs) Like, I was like saying this line from a little kid's TV commercial from the 80s, and this, this whatever dot in the sky was responding immediately, like without, without a microsecond of hesitation. I would say it and it would overlap almost. Well, you know, um, we're, I'm going to get ahead of myself for a moment. I lived in a Buddhist monastery for uh, seven years. And one of the things that we, that was emphasized to us and that I emphasize to my students now is that you have to touch this mystical stuff. And I'm sorry, seeing, seeing a, 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 an object in the sky that doesn't resemble anything man-made, uh, that's a mystical event in my book. And when you approach it, if you approach it with the innocence of a child, um, it, the, the response, there's, always, there's usually a response, and it's a very positive response. And as one Native American medicine man put it, now, think in terms of the ETs, it's like a lot of people saw them as gods back in ancient times, right? So think of looking at the ETs. If you take one step towards the gods, which you did by saying your thing, they'll come two steps towards you, and they flash back, didn't they? Well, you did the same thing. You said, well, maybe it'll dance around like a fairy. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So, so now we're, I'm, I'm all for taking the big leap here that we're taking. So jumping right into the mystical stuff, and it was on my list of well, questions we'll, here. we'll get there. You don't need to go right there now, but, you know. Oh, yeah, good. That's where my heart is in this stuff, is this deeper mystical stuff. Hey, what I will do right now is we have reached the 15-minute uh, mark, and we will need to take a short break. For members, we'll be right back. But for non-members, we're going to have a few commercials. Ever wonder what the Close Encounter experience is all about? Think you know what it's about? When you open Whitley and Ann Streber's Immortal Communion Letters, you're going to experience a whole new vision. Not something being told to us by researchers and theorists, but the actual testimony of people who came face-to-face with this unknown. Unforgettable. And the book is only three ninety nine at Streber.com. This is Whitley Streber. I'll be at the Portal to Ascension Conference October 4th to the 6th, 2019, 
go to ascensionconference.com to find out more. It's going to be a really good show. Michael Tellinger will be there. J.J. and Desiree Hurtock, Travis Walton, and of course, yours truly. I'll be talking about A New World, the new book that I am bringing out, as well as ongoing contacts with Anne, who is still very much part of this whole operation. Incredibly. What a life. Don't miss me at the Portal to Ascension Conference. It's going to be a lot of fun. Earthfiles.com is Linda Moulton Howe's great website, offering news of the edge of science and reality. Keep up with Linda's work every single day on earthfiles.com. Whitley Strieber became the host of Dreamland in 1998, and he's still the host today. One of the first podcasts, Dreamland has been built into the premier program of its kind, exploring the edge of science and reality. The show's archive on unknowncountry.com dates back to 2004. Dreamland is a treasure unique in the world. Help keep us on the air by subscribing to unknowncountry.com today. Go to unknowncountry.com and click on the subscribe tab. Dreamland, where wonder is spoken. We are back with Cheryl Costa talking about UFOs and the research and the mystical stuff. And uh, we jumped ahead a little bit, uh, and uh, during the break, uh, Cheryl and I talked like, okay, we got to take it back, and we're going to get to the mystical stuff before our time is up. So let's turn to your 2017 book that you wrote with Linda, and that's your spouse, Linda, and the title of the book is UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015. What was the genesis of this enormous project? Okay, well, two things. In the course of me writing my column, uh, I started adding up, like, sightings in counties, okay? Two things I discovered. The MUFON entries for column, they did gather county information, but it was dependent upon the person making the report, and it was most wrong most of the time. Um, and then National UFO Reporting Center didn't collect the information. In fact, I wrote Pete Davenport, and I said, hey, can, do you guys, do you have county data? And he said, put a pin in the map. You know, and that was his answer. And uh, literally, so I started adding things up by counties, okay? And just, just looking at a certain year or something like that, or I would look up everything but based on the cities and look up what counties they were. And um, finally, to support my writing, we crunched New York State. And at that time, it was about 3,200, maybe, maybe almost 4,000 records at the time. And... We started sharing some stuff with New York State and other New York State investigators, and they started saying, wait a minute. We didn't know there was a cluster there. Remember, I got county data now, and all these little burgs that report onesie doozy type stuff started showing up up in the rural areas, okay? And uh, and uh, everybody knew there was a Lake, uh, Lake Erie effect out by the uh, Niagara Frontier and Lake Erie, okay? Everybody knew they've had heavy sightings for years, but what we didn't know was when we did – one of the major counties on Lake Ontario, that the city that is the major city there is like the number two city in, the, in New York State for sightings, and the county was like in the top ten. It was huge. Okay, and uh, we said, "Wait a minute! Wow, look at this!" You know, so these other investigators were saying, scratching their heads, saying, "Wow, this is stuff we've never seen before." So, in uh, fall of 2015. 
Now, I had already in, at the IUFO C back, I think, 2015. So when I saw you talk about the screen memories, you know, your four foot bird, you know, and uh, uh, so we were, we, we, Linda and I were talking over, we were at our pub. We were t- looking at each other over a couple of pints and we said, look at all the cool stuff we found, you know, and, and she looks at me and says, what if we did the whole country? And we just sat there and stared at each other for about 10 minutes, both kind of contemplating how big a job that was because it took us three months to do New York State. But we didn't know what we were doing, you know. Uh, So we did. And she said, okay, let's do this. And this was probably October time frame. And we had the next two and a half months to figure out our protocols for crunching and gathering the data. Okay, and basically she set down some rules. She's the, what people don't realize. They see me out here presenting. I've got the arts and entertainment degree. I've got the top hat and the cane. I don't mind going on stage. I don't mind going on radio. She's a bit more shy than that. She's got the science degrees. Okay, she worked at the National Academy of Science. She was the head librarian at the Environmental Protection Agency for fifteen years. Okay, smart lady. So she says, we're going to make this thing look like a government report. We're going to put a plane cover on it. It's going to be data. It's going to be a UFO census. There won't be any cute aliens on the cover. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to publish data. We're going to make a 21st century sightings census. And she set down the whole tone for it. So come January 1st. I'm up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I brought all of the National UFO Reporting Center's stuff down in under two hours, which was great. Uh, And I started cleaning it up. And by that time, Linda and I being both had been federal contractors. And the rule as a federal contractor is write a really good process procedure and make sure you do as little work as possible by having a very efficient process procedure. And uh, so we actually wrote down notes, things that took us two months to do back in 2014, 2015, we can do in a week now because we know what we're doing. Okay. So that's how we built the book about May of 2016. I went through some hoops trying to get the MUFON data and got a lot of pushback initially. Finally, Linda got on the phone. She's the executive. I'm not. And she got on the phone. And um, 20 minutes later, I had a file. Okay. And uh, that's how it started. And I started cleaning their stuff up and eventually, and then we merged it and we started being able to crank charts and things. But there was a lot of clean data cleanup that had to be done. The data in both databases is dirty. It has a lot of problems. And uh, we had, like I said, write a process procedure for correcting uh, at least 15 kinds of problems that is in the data. So you just can't pick it out and start crunching it. You, you got you to gotta do a lot of cleanup. But like I said, it took us months to do. But now we really know what we're doing. And I can do a current new year coming in or something like that. I can do it about two or three days now. It's very easy to do. Um, and that's it. That's how we got started. And the idea was we were going to publish it as a print-on-demand book. Okay, uh, we knew no publisher was going to touch a thing like this. They'd want to. They'd want to do things to it that we didn't want to happen. Linda, being a librarian, didn't want a, some publisher to publish it and then have that book be on the pallet at the bookstore, seventy or ninety percent off. We didn't want that. Okay, and that's what. That's how we went off and did it. And, and this book is filled with charts and data and tables. Yes, it's a it's a very dry book. Oh, I I tell I t- I tell people 
it's got all the before you i especially when i do podcasts and radio shows i say look guys remember one thing there's no stories in this thing there's a little about five chapters of analysis but this book has all the charm of a bank ledger i warn you but if you're into investigation it's got all the secrets of the universe in there for you and then i will also say that that your introduction is is you're pretty bold you you that's pretty playful and you're i can hear your voice in the in the introduction <laughs> I was very pleased with the two forwards we got, one by uh, Rick, uh, Rich Hoffman and the other one by Dr. Gordon Spear. Yes, yes. Blew their socks off. You know, that, that, that's not my first love, let's say. It's like when I think about you know, doing UFO research, that's not what I look to. But what I can say, you know, shortly thereafter, shortly after the publication, did you, you got a phone call from the New York Times. Yeah, uh, Ralph Blumenthal, and, and this is the same Ralph Blumenthal that broke the Pentagon story on December 16th. What people don't realize, there were three sort of disclosures in 2017. January 17th of 2017, the CIA declassified eh, 13 million Kissinger documents, but there were some UFO documents in there. And it was very telling because for years, the CIA said, oh, we don't study UFOs, but here were documents from the late 40s and early 50s that said they did, showed that they clearly did. And, were, and they were pulling their hair out about some of the same things Linda and I were pulling our hair out about. Um, I think that woke the, the, the New York Times up. OK. Mm -hmm. And and Ralph told me later, he says he took a copy of our book and put it on his editor's desk and said, hey, I know why we don't report UFOs, basically, because all, all there ever was was just stories. OK, and he says, I know why we don't report UFOs. And he drops the book on the guy's desk and says, some old ladies in Syracuse did the science. OK, when the article came out, the title was people are seeing UFOs everywhere. And this book proves it. And we were the first one to produce scientific data, not a case study of one UFO done to death or to nauseam. But we've instead of studying one ant, we decided to study the freaking anthill. You know, when that article came out, I was really surprised. And actually, it's funny because a lot of people point to, um, uh, obviously, the I guess it was December of 2017, the as the disclosure moment with the with the article by Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keene, and then there was the Pentagon writer that was also part of that triad of of reporters. You know that, but I would point to your article, you know, whatever seven months earlier. You know, as like a crack in the dam. Thank you. Like a crack in the disclosure dam. Yes. And, and the fact that, that Ralph Blumenthal wrote that article, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning. He's a, he was on the organized crime beat and stuff like that. And I actually, this is, I was, you know, there was a point where I was kind of shameless about this stuff. And I sent him a, a letter. I just said, Hey, um, I got to ask, you know, how did you get this past the, the editors? And then I'm actually read from his reply because he replied to me, which surprised me, and I was grateful for that. And he said, thanks. I'm aware of the Times record on the subject. I was a reporter there for many years, and I know the editorial mindset. So I was able to pitch it sensitively. And I thought that was very dry how he said it. But it, it kind of blew my mind that it was. That pretty much goes with the conversation. He came up on the train and spent a day with me in our we had in our old house a hundred year old house we had we had a library downstairs and we sat in the library drinking tea and eating scones him and I for about four or five hours then Linda got done work came home joined the conversation we sat there for another couple of hours then we went down to an Irish pub and talked the night away and uh, I 
truly, I made the point to him at one point. He says, look, sooner or later, I'm on a little dinky paper. And he said he'd read articles of mine. I says, look, I says, until a paper like you or the Washington Post puts the weight of a major newspaper of record behind this thing, we're never going to crack the disclosure with the government by putting their feet in the fire. And he agreed. Plus, plus he's, he's been working on a book about John Mack. Yes, and it's my understanding that it's at the editors now. Uh-huh. Yep. You don't need to, I mean, you can obviously dance around this question if you want to, because it's hard for you to put words in someone else's mouth. But what is um, Ralph Blumenthal on a scale of 1 to 10? What's his interest in UFOs? I'd say in a, uh, somebody would put a book about John Mack's life together. I would say they're on a scale of 6 to 7. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they went after this article, he was very concerned about the fact that there has been this, as Steve Bassett puts it, the truth embargo for all these years. And he was he was deeply concerned about that as well. And he didn't say it in these words, but I sensed during the course, just, just the two of us having that journalism conversation, that – he had sort of there was he danced around the words, but basically it amounted to the fourth estate has not been doing its job on this topic matter. And, and what what has happened is the fourth estate has crumbled in the in the wake of uh, the internet, and it is little bloggers and it is people doing it out of their you know out of their laptop that has I think has changed the mindset of of people. I don't I don't have the data to look at it, but my sense, my sort of finger to the wind kind of thing, is that. The American public is is much, much, much more open to this than they were 20 years ago or a decade ago. And I think that corresponds to the availability of free information on the Internet, which we did not have 20 years ago. Well, another thing, yeah, that too. Yeah, for sure on that. But I thought after TTSA, uh, you know, to the Stars Academy people did their big reveal Along with the, the December 16, 2017 material, I thought there'd be a, a thawing out with local news directors and editors. And I had new data from um, for upstate New York. And I approached an average of three news outlets, a newspaper, a television sta- station, a radio station in every one of the principal cities in New York State. And I got crickets. This is in the past year. And I reached out to uh, only two bothered to talk to me. Okay. And one did a really good piece on me that was Spectrum News. That's a cable service. Uh, but one of the ABC affiliates and Next Stars owned stations, um, they were reluctant to do it. In fact, the reporter who did the story told me he pitched it five times since the time the book came out until sometime late last year. So it was almost, took almost a year for, for them to loosen up and let them do a piece. Okay. So the, there's still resistance. George Knapp came to me, um, earlier in the year and he said he was going to pitch on a conference call to the 125, 140 Next Star owned station news directors. Okay, this is about eight months ago, and he was going to pitch them a chance. He said, look, here's this lady who's got all these statistics right down to your local level, okay? And she'll support you with any kind of numbers you need for a local story about UFOs in your area and your viewership. He was the only station that did 
an article. And I reached out to our local Next Star stations. In fact, the, the five that were in New York State, crickets, silence. And I saw later after he did his video piece with me on Skype talking to him uh, in Nevada, I saw two stations in one in San Diego and one, I think, in Arizona carried that piece but did not produce a piece of their own. And I've been trying to analyze this and I've talked to a number of editors and it comes down to some degree. They've been trained for credibility, confirmation and verifiability. So they still are functioning from the idea until we produce a cracked up spacecraft in the, in the schoolyard or a dead, dead bleeding alien on the pavement, uh, they're not going to report it. Or they're going to report it only very reluctantly if a major entity reports it. And and that's the flaw in this, isn't there? I mean, that witness testimony can put someone in the electric chair, but, you know, compiling witness testimony in a big, fat book that makes it to the New York Times, you know, where the title of the headline is, and this book proves it as far as people are seeing UFOs everywhere. Yeah, it's tough. I agree. It's tough. And so I'm, you know, like, like, it's a it's tough to change the status quo, but at the edges, there's certainly people that are open to this stuff, very open but to it. But it's, it's a little worse than that. Um, what it boils down to, I went and interviewed. I'm a member of a uh, upstate New York press club, and I went and I talked to a number of editors. And basically the general census of the two questions I gave them was um, these people come to us without a shred of evidence. Okay, that's their problem. Well, I made the argument to all of them after I did the the, the survey. I said, um, I've got evidence. It's called a preponderance evidence. I've got, and at this point when I did this, uh, I have 147,000 eyewitness accounts. Our book had 121,000. Well, you know, eyewitness accounts, the only way to discredit them, like you said, they can get you convicted in any court in this country. Um, the only way you can defend against it, is, short of CSI evidence to the contrary, is to discredit the witness. It comes down to the, oh, Mrs. Murphy, were you wearing your bifocals or your reading glasses when you allegedly saw Pete hit Susie over the head? You know? So in terms of the UFO community, uh, we get discredited with the uh, label. Labels are very powerful. Um, kooks. Nuts, delusionals, and conspiracy theorists. And it's still used. When I, I was approaching a news organization here a couple of weeks ago to do, again, I did it for a television station. I now have the ability in my database to give you all, any television broadcasting company, their television markets numbers. Because they aren't just by county. It's by county and sometimes portions of county. But it's very, very, very specific area. And uh, I have the ability to do this. And I did this for a couple stations. I, I genned up their numbers and said, here's the view, here's your size, your viewership of households from the people who calculate this, you know, the, the, the ratings. And here's the UFO sightings for your viewing area and broken down by d- districts within it. Again, crickets. Uh, and I thought with, you know, with Navy pilots coming out and the big reveal about the Pentagon and everything that would loosen them up. No, you know something? Those of us who have been researchers are still going to be painted. Oh, those Navy guys. And oh, that, that guy, Chris Mellon, who was a, an assistant defense secretary of intelligence, right? 
they're official people. Oh, they've got gravitas. Oh, you're just a local crackpot. That's the tone I got back from one station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I will, from my direct experience, I'll go to a, to a family dinner or something like that or to a dinner party or something like that, and people kind of know what I do, and you can kind of tell that there's uh, some eye-rolling. But there's usually someone who will take me aside and tell me a very, very thoughtful experience that they had. You know, then, and they're... And it's an emotional, challenging thing for them sometimes to tell the story. Sometimes it's it's fun for them to share the story, but usually it's something heavy for them. So, yeah, I mean, there's a need for this. It may not be – we may not be reaching the people with the way we want to reach them, but I feel we're still reaching the people. Well, let me, let me go on that tact a minute. While writing my column, I had people reach out to me and invite me to like a backyard barbecue. Now, I always, I went over there with a security person, you know, to make sure it wasn't a lynch mob. But, but very quickly we found out it was really a barbecue and I'd have a beer and a burger in my hand in no time and that'd be it. And they'd say, we, we invited you over to meet our uncle Ralph, our aunt Susie, you know, uh, Ralph flew bombers in World War II and he saw Foo Fighters, you know, you know, that kind of conversation. And something that I discovered was, and I wrote an article about this, people may have not been calling up the police or calling up a newspaper or coming out in public about this, but families have been handing down UFO sightings and ET experiencer events within their families as family heirlooms. There's an oral history being handed down in a number of families. And uh, I one, one lady I talked to, she was in her 80s, her family's been talking about this stuff for four generations. And that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Hey, we, we are reached the end of our, um, the first half hour and we need to say goodbye to the free dreamlanders. And for paying members, we'll be spending the next half hour digging much deeper into this conversation. Thank you, Cheryl Costa. We will be right back. The new unknown country is here and it has so much to offer. Our huge archive of Dreamland, plus the full run of William Henry's revelations, Ann Streber's mysterious powers and her incredible contactee interviews, Whitley's Communion, Secret School, Transformation, and Majestic eBooks, his powerful meditations, and so much more. Plus every week, the full subscriber versions of Whitley's Dreamland, Mike Cleland's The Unseen, and monthly, Jeremy Vaney's The Experience. We offer subscriptions either by credit card or PayPal, either automatic renewal or annual or longer subscriptions without auto-renew. Plus, it's easy to cancel if you wish. Do it right in your account. Plus, a live chat every week on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific and so much more. Go to UnknownCountry.com right now and subscribe. Keep this incredible site going and have a great time doing it. UnknownCountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information. Listen to what Dr. Robert Schock said. He's an expert on the past, and for that reason, he also knows a great deal about the future. We are re-entering, as you say, a debris field, and when you have a debris field like this, it enters the solar system, it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun, even clouds of dust particles, for instance, it will energize the sun, it will destabilize the sun. This is what we saw at the end of the last ice age in approximate terms. 
about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, more enormous meteors have been sighted, and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to UnknownCountry.com right now. Click on the subscribe tab. Get started. You've probably heard the music for years. It's the theme song for Dreamland. But you may not know the name of the piece, The O of Pleasure. Or the name of the composer, Ray Lynch. Ray Lynch is a three-time Billboard Award winner. Ray is also the composer of the platinum album, Deep Breakfast. Pandora calls Ray one of the most influential artists in New Age pop and adult alternative circles. For music that will move your heart and set your spirit soaring, visit www.raylynch.com. We are back on The Unseen. My guest, Cheryl Costa, is talking about UFOs, both the very, very dry research, as well as the more personal and mystical sides of things. Cheryl, you just did a town meeting of sorts. Is that correct? Yes, we did. Oh, boy, was that fun. <laughs> uh, we did it actually, um, let's see, uh, the, the date of the UFO town hall was um, July 18th. And this this interview is happening on July 19th, so it's literally the morning after. And um, because we didn't have very much money, we were limited to social media for promotion in a very a very uh, lightly populated farming district. But we were in a 200 year old Baptist church that was had been converted into an art center, a performing arts center. And uh, the guy who um, is the director of the place used to be one of my editors. At Syracuse New Time, so he was he, he was pumped to have me come down here and do a talk like this. We had about sixty to seventy people show up. It was a relatively mature audience. It was it was a little on the gray side, if you know what I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, Linda hosted it. She did most of the talking, which a lot of people think I'm I'm the showboat person, but I let her do most of the talking this time. And uh, she's got the psychology degree as well, so she she wanted to frame her words and different tones so she did that i got up and gave a uh, about a 15 minute version of my hour presentation about ufo stats both nationally and in new york state and then we turned it over to her and she opened it up and there was a microphone out in the audience and there was also a floating uh, wireless microphone out there someplace and we invited people to come up and initially there's about 60 70 people uh it started off very very shaky with the first two people and then it was like somebody threw a light switch and suddenly everybody had a hand up. 
you know, and they're passing the microphone around. In all, we had uh, 20 people give testament to us. We had two rules. Uh, one rule was um, what stay. Uh, this was in Homer, New York. Uh, what's said in Homer stays in Homer. Okay, so nobody. We told everybody we don't want to know your name. Don't give us a first name, last name. Just say you know uh, I might. I'm from uh, whatever town you're from. Okay, and they, they'd get up and tell us what they had. Some people had waited decades to get their sighting off their chest. Other people. Um, were a bit more scientific about it, uh, Paid uh, had a really, really introspective sighting, uh, gave us both great detail. We even had two or three people uh, describe what would be called an experiencer event. We had one lady said, you know, I was out camping with my dog. My dog does not sit, sit next to me very much. And uh, I heard this humming sound type of thing. And I woke up the next morning, rolled up in a fetal position on my cot, and my dog uh, in a similar position on my cot. You know, this is the kind of talk we had for 90 minutes. And, and then they swamped us at the end of the presentation. They, they swamped us up at the front of the uh, stage. Amazingly enough, I had three press organ- media organizations there. Spectrum News covered it. I had given them an exclusive. And um, I had a college newspaper there. And a the local uh, Cortland, New York paper, which essentially served the the Homer area. Uh, it was a, a wonderful success. You know, we go to these UFO conferences, and we do all the talking up on stage. We very rarely does does a conference open up and have a roundtable session. Come share your personal story. And I've been advocating that to some of these uh, uh, conference proprietors, saying, "Hey, you need to do this. These people." want to share something too, you know, and nobody seems to want to listen to me on that topic matter or listen to, listen to Linda on that topic matter. But where you, where you go to a conference and the, you know, sitting in the audience, listening to a presentation is one thing. And then just sitting at the bar and having a conversation with a complete stranger or a table full of strangers is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a researcher named David Marler. And he came up with the term unambiguous UFOs, which I think is good. So he's making a separation between the little tiny dot of light in the sky and then what would be a more ambiguous sight, unambiguous sighting, excuse me, like a, a structured craft close up uh, that would be, you know, there's no question that it's not ours. Let's just put yep. it that way. Yep. Do you have any way to factor that into your data? Linda and I did an exercise after the book came out and the exercise was, and this is Linda talking on that part of it. She says the the truth is in the shapes. And I came up with the other one after I got crunching the data, the secret is the real secret of UFOs sightings is in small numbers, the tiny numbers. So what we did, we sat down with a list of the 30 shapes that are available to us combined from both MUFON and Newfork. And we took those 30 shapes and we eliminated every, just for the exercise, we eliminated everything that could be anywhere near construed to be like a commercial aircraft. Cigar shape. Yes, I know there are cigar shapes. Yes, I know there are cylinder shapes, but we threw them out. We threw out that light in the sky thing. Uh, we threw out everything that looked like anything like a conventional. I even threw out triangles. The reason I threw out triangles was because Every time I ever did an article about triangles, I always had about five, ten mansplainers come to me and say, oh, Cheryl, that's a TR-3B. I'm sorry. The one I saw and the one I talked to uh, Mr. Marler about 
uh, was a football field and a half long and two or three stories deep. It was flying over my house at about 30 miles an hour. Well, okay. well, hold it. Wait a minute. So you, you saw a triangle-shaped craft flowing, yeah. flying over your house very slowly. About 3.30 in the morning, I had just come back from putting the morning edition to bed at the Post Standard. And I had just put the car in the garage. And I had this little ritual standing there in the driveway and looking up if the sky was clear, looking up at like the, the Big Dipper and the North Star, that type of thing. It was a clear night, middle of August 2012. I wasn't even a UFO reporter at that time. And all of a sudden, I noticed the stars being blotted out. And I, I heard this, this kind of sound, humming sound. And the stars were being blotted out. It's like you hear people describing the Phoenix lights. The stars were being blotted out in a triangular form. And as it got past, I saw the big three glowing things on the back of it. It had the red light on the, on the bottom side. And it just was heading very casually off into the northeast. Well, I didn't report it. I didn't know how to report it in those days. And I was scared to reach out and go on record at the time. And uh, this is a year before I started writing my column. And when I started writing my column a year later, I was going through the uh, National UFO Reporting Center database and son of a gun. I, because I had this in my diary. And I looked up. There's a lady coming out of Krauss Hospital, third coming off shift about 3.30 in the morning. Syracuse is sort of like Rome. We have all these hills. And she was on one of the opposite hills in town. And she reported this thing. Okay, so that kind of gave me corroboration to having seen it. But that's that's the extent of it. So you've seen this is the third UFO report you're giving me on this in this show here. This is very interesting. Very interesting. Honey, I've seen 40 of them. Oh, my gosh. OK, now now we're getting to So, uh, yes, this is this is OK. Here's a question that I did. I wrote an essay, an article. Actually, it was I did this, uh, I don't know, probably five, six years ago for Open Minds when they had their the website. This is the Alejandro Rojas was the uh, editor there. And I did an interview with, I talked with him and I kind of said, you guys need to like dig deeper. I was kind of pushy <laughs> and he kind of was like, no. And then, then he said, well, let's write it, write an article. We'll publish it. So I did, I wrote an article and, and the article was about, um, I had been talking to a lot of UFO abduction researchers. And then what you hear from them is that they say, some of them give a really high number, but a lot of abduction researchers will say that over Half the people who see UFOs, this is very sloppy math right now, but this is what I was hearing. Abduction researchers, some would say the majority of people who see UFOs are actually having a contact experience. I would agree. The majority, so you're it's 51% or more. Well... I, I, obviously, this is impossible to know, really, but... No, 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 because, because remember what we were talking about early in the program... That uh, there seems to be a psychic link to these things. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think some of it is, I'm not 100% sure. You know, people say, well, I wasn't able to get a picture of it, you know. Let me go back to monastery training. Some of these things that seem like a very long moment, spiritual event kind of thing, a, 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 a kiss of the muses, whatever you want to call it, that, that momentary inspiration you have to approach it with the innocence of a child. The moment you start doing analytical on the thing, it, it goes away. Okay. And uh, I sometimes think that these aren't always craft and sometimes they are projections to our consciousness. And I, I tend to agree with that. I, that concept, um, Linda and I did some calculations sometime back. Uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée did a, a, a um, 
Coast to Coast. And they did it with uh, George Knapp. This is about six, seven months ago. And during that conversation, he made the, he made this remark about that, you know, one, he thought about 80 percent was noise. But he was talking about the changing UFOs and how they seem to drive his team nuts. Is they start putting up, aiming their equipment at the UFO, and it changed. Now, I never paid attention to the changing UFOs. I always thought it was the observer who just didn't know what the heck they were looking at, you know, because I've talked to people who have said there were 10 of us there. Eight of us all saw this thing, but only two of us described it the same way, and one person of the eight of us couldn't even see it, okay? Very common, very common, yeah. Very, very common, yes. Well, when they were talking about the changing UFOs, so I went back into the data, and I looked at the data, and the changing UFO, well, all the UFO shapes in the United States, well, I'll say it this way, of 30 UFO shapes, um, all but four have dropped off by 40% in the last five years, four to five years. All and but 40%. four. I could guess that I, I'm going to guess orange orb is one of the ones that's still at the... At the no. Oh, interesting. Okay. No, no. In fact, that 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 went to pieces uh, around 2014. How interesting! In fact, it really only shows up prominently from the 2008 time frame to about 2014. And it falls off rather steeply. No, uh, three of the shapes are on a steep increase. They seem to be related, and there's one that is a constant. Now, I'm going to give you a metaphor for your audience. Imagine you're walking through a wheat field, a nice tall grass up to your hips, okay? This, if, if all that wheat were all the sightings we see, like the 147,000 sightings over 18 years, the one that is the most consistent, the most regular, and the most stable is called the changing UFO and the numbers are so small, it almost looks like if you blot, put it on a graph, all the other shapes dominate the thing, and this one is barely off the bottom of the graph. In fact, if it was if you were walking through that grass, it would be the snake crawling across your sneaker. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Averages between 73 and 180 sightings a year. Basically about 123 average. So only about 2,400 sightings in 18 years. Oh, here, let me just interrupt. I would say only the reported sightings. I'm certain many more people are seeing these things and they're just they're, they're not getting reported. They don't count. They don't report them. I can't count them. I, I understand that. But yes, keep going. Uh, and I, I've got stats on how many people are reporting this stuff now because we, work, so we found a way, a metric to calculate the math. And it's definitely that one in 10 story is baloney. What is it then? Just just. Well, okay, I was given 1 in 10. Well, uh, if we have an adult population of 254 million people, that means we should have uh, 25 million UFO reports. We don't. I, I had it explained to me, oh, Cheryl, it's 10% see them, 10% of that report them. Well, that means we have 25 million people seeing these things, but we don't have 2.4 million people reporting them. Um, Fox Pictures did a poll through a professional polling agency in 2017 before the release of some picture they had about Phoenix lights and abductions and all that. And their measurement said 16.74% say they have seen a UFO. Now you crank that back against adult population of 254 million, which is basically the population of the United States times 
Okay, 76% is adults. And then take that number and run it against uh, this uh, 16%. And basically it comes out 5.97 or essentially one in six people has seen a UFO. And that would be about, that seems about fair to me, yeah. Yeah, it does to me too, much better than the one in 10. But the amount of people you report them, so I go back and I take that that number of people, who, that percentage of people who saw them, uh, around 42 million, and I crank that back through 147,000 sightings, and it comes back to, now this is for the national, your mileage may vary based on your state, okay? And I just got done calculating a state run. But for nationally, it comes down to about the one in either 275, depending on which population number you use, use, or one in 290. I, I round it off and say one in 300 people. Is reporting. Yes. Okay, so let's go back to that snake in the grass of the changing UFOs. So I did a plot on the thing, and if you look at it, it just goes across the graph, going up and down, up and down, little humpy, 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 humpy thing all the way across the 18 years. It's the most regular thing out there. And remember I said it's about 2,400 sightings? Okay, now let's go to another way I look at the data. I have all these trolls come to me, oh, Cheryl, there's lots of misidentified in your data. You don't vet this stuff. Okay, fine. I don't have to. I'm looking at big data. It all straightens out in the wash, okay, from our book. I assume 5% is junk right off the bat, okay? All right, so we took and said, all right, Linda and I did a different calculation than Dr. Valet. He said 80% was noise. We came up with 70% was noise because we only kept the exotic shapes, the non-aerodynamic shapes, the non-easily confused, and non. Uh, we kept only the non-ambiguous shapes. We dropped lights. We dropped fireballs. We dropped triangles because people keep telling me they're TR3B. So, hey, if they're a government plane, I'm not going to count them. Okay. And too many of them do look like uh, different kinds of stealth bombers and things. So we just kept the really exotic shapes, you know, circles and squares and, and uh, that kind of thing. And we kept it. And so basically 30% of our number was about uh, 44,400, I think it was. Okay. And then if you crank that back, divide that by 18 years. We came up with a number of about 2,440. And then when you divide it by 12 for each month of those years, it came up to 204. And then we divided that 204 by 50 states. Now, it's not weighted to population. I'll give that caveat to you. But just on a swag, four exotic UFO events in every state in the country every month, every year for the last 18 years. And that's that's my sense too, yeah. And there's that 2,400 number. Guess what? 2,400 was the number of the changing UFOs as well. 2,400 and change, you know. Pretty interesting. And even Dr. Villay's number, when I crank his 80% back against it, it puts it down to three exotic events in every state every month for 18 years and that feels that feels genuine and what, what are people reporting these changing ufos because i've heard this many many times that it like oh it started out as a like an orb and then it grew into a giant cigar and then it like you know turned into a glowing sun and then it poofed and vanished yep 
Yep, that's exactly what they see. And, you know, in my mind, uh, the UFO, I think, I think this is just me. You know, I'm a, I'm a former Navy electronic warfare specialist. Okay. And, uh, a good electronic warfare team can make the stuff that's on the enemy's radar screen complete fiction. Okay. Sure. Okay. So. If they're that much further ahead of us here and can project into our brains and that kind of thing, which I suspect they, they got AI and uh, living ships up there who have telepathic capability to us, I suspect they have that. That is the ultimate stealth mode. You know, they just make themselves appear to be whatever they they morph whatever they want to be to appear like. We have no idea what they really look like. This there's a screen memory aspect to all this stuff. Oh, uh-huh. oh yeah, big time. And that's one of the problems, right? So I'm, you know, like in, in moments of frustration, I kind of just like shrug my shoulders and maybe the whole thing is a screen memory. Maybe the whole thing is being projected into our minds. Um, I don't think that's the entirety, but certainly it makes it a mess to try to, to try to research this stuff if, if our, if our perceptions are being, are being tampered with. You gave a presentation, I think it was 2004 or two, uh, 2014 or 2015. You gave a talk. 14, 2014. Yeah. 14, right. You were in the audience. Yes, I was. Well, right on for you. That was, I was, I was so nervous before I stepped onto the stage. And once I got on the stage and just started talking, I had rehearsed very, I had rehearsed very thoroughly. It was, it was totally fun. I had, a, it was a joy to give that. Uh, what I got a giggle about was, uh, you told the story about the uh, lady who was coming down a path, ran into a grade. Suddenly it was the gray started projecting bird, 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 you know, owl, 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 yeah. owl, owl, owl. And there was a, suddenly there was a four foot owl standing there, you know, and then you brought out a, Card, uh, a phone board uh, cut out of what a four-foot owl would look like. It was pretty scary, actually. I took that owl and I put it in front of my car. I lived in a rural part of Idaho at the time, and, <laughs> and it was a lonely winter thing. It was just down the street from me, but it was just like – and I had to get a picture, right, because that's what people report, that this owl's in front of your car. So I had to, like, move the car up and kind of back the car back a little bit and kind of line it up so that the owl would peek over the hood of my Subaru, and that's what people are reporting. And And let me tell you, I was like, you know – 50 yards from my front door. It was so creepy. This is a piece of cardboard. And I was like, how can people say, oh, yeah, I saw a four-foot-tall owl on the road? It, I just was like, something's going on. It it was creepy to do it with a piece of cardboard. I can't imagine what it would be like to see it in real life. Well, let's talk about screen memory. I, had a, I did a story. Uh, I, I don't remember what the title of it was, but I did a story uh, a couple of years later. I... Uh, Linda and I are a couple of gay ladies, and we we know other gay ladies, as they say. And uh, this one couple, uh, a bit on the elderly side, had been up to one of the Finger Lakes for uh, the stay at their cottage. And they came back, and uh, one of them was going down cellar to their. They have a pantry in the cellar to get some, you know, some cans of stuff to make supper. The other was hauling in the suitcases from the car. And all of a sudden, the one in the going down cellar let out a blood curdling scream, and the other one came running in. And when it got, this person got into the cellarway going down. There's a, she said there was a top platform at the top of the stairs, and about eight ten steps down there was a middle platform. Then it went down to the cellar floor, and the other woman was laying on the steps with her hands in front of her, trying to keep something away from her. And the second woman who came in from outside looked above her and saw what looked to be and was acting like bats, about six or seven of them. And they were brown. 
And the lady pulled her partner out of there and he closed the door thinking, my God, we got bats in the cellar. Okay. And then it didn't sit right with them. So they went down later in the cellar and they didn't see any bats down there. And they looked around for guano, didn't find anything like that. Because they were getting ready to make a very expensive phone call to a local in New York State. You have to call a, a Department of Environmental Protection a certified trapper to come and get them. You know? And it's not cheap. So um, over the next few weeks, the first woman's vision began clearing up about this thing. And she realized that they really weren't bats. It was just some kind of a shape in front of her that kind of mimicked like a bat. And as they dug down deeper in, and as their memory cleared over about three weeks, the first woman who had gone into the stairway to go down the cellar remembered seeing a little man in a blue jumpsuit, big almond eyes, bald, rummaging through some of their stuff in the cellar. Isn't that telling? Yeah. 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 So here we then we have the I'm just we have an animal, we have like a totem animal, I mean a bat and vampires and such like that. It's got it's steeped in our lore, you know, Halloween and archetype. Like yeah, archetype. It's an archetypal psychological archetype. Yeah, that, that is that is thrust into their consciousness. Yeah. You know, don't look at the magician's left hand, look at the magician's right hand, you know. Something else is going on. Well, when Mabel told me she looked into the stairway above her partner, she told me that uh, she initially thought they were bats, but the more she thought about it after she closed the door, they weren't bats. They were. There was just a, a a squiggly thing about the size of a bat flapping, you know. And and she realized that the thing really wasn't an animal. But it took her a couple of days to kind of clear that up. You know, and realized that, that that it was just something that was being projected. And of course, the uh, uh, the lady uh, Julie, when she was going down cellar, uh, she had that initial startling the little guy down below, and he projected something to her. And it's it, between seeing him and then suddenly seeing these things uh, hovering above her, flapping, uh, it rattled her obviously. But like I said, the two of them talked it out. They didn't hold it in. They talked it out and gradually. The screen memory cleared, but they said it took like about, oh, like they talked about it once or twice a week for like almost a month before it cleared. And then I got to do is they dropped me a, a te- an email and said, would you like to talk to us? And we uh, we talked and I did an article. I blinded their names, of course. This is remarkable. So there's two aspects to your work here. So you, you're doing this very, very dry statistical stuff, getting remarkable big picture results. And then at the same time, I mean, living in a Buddhist monastery for seven years, I you run a you run a radio show called Cosmic Questions, and that's that, that's about that's pro mysticism, pro metaphysics, pro witchcraft. Yes, so you're juggling these two disparate things, which I don't think. I mean, yes, we need both of them, right? So we're, we're like, there's a reason we have we have. Uh, you know, we're tool users and such like that. There's a reason we need to do these pragmatic things. But within our, I'm going to say it straight up, within our souls, there's a there's a need to be fully human, I feel, that to like, you know, recognize this mystical aspect. And how do you merge these two for your in your work? Well, up until now, for the most part, I, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. Um, I've only written a couple of consciousness articles 
And I did them in the context of sharing some meditation um, tips to CE5 people as to how I couched it. Okay. The only real serious talk I've done on consciousness, uh, I was at the Ozark uh, UFO conference here a couple months ago. And there's a guy there that runs the uh, Anon who runs the um, UFO hub. I know him well. He's a wonderful guy, a remarkable guy. Delightful man. He'd already interviewed me about UFO stats like on Friday afternoon of the convention. And him and I got into a really long conversation about spirituality related with UFO contacts and experiencers and things. And I said, if you want to have a talk, I'll come down. I'll come down to your suite and do a talk for you Saturday morning on consciousness. And he said, please. And I went in there. I did the talk. It's 20 minutes. It's up on YouTube. If you go, folks, if you're listening, if you Google uh, UFO Hub, Cheryl Costa, you'll see there's two talks out there, one about UFO stats. It's probably almost an hour. And then the other one is about 22 minutes. It's about consciousness. And uh, that one blew everybody away because here I was just, uh, I was the proverbial monk there telling you telling you about consciousness. And uh, I, I left that interview thinking to myself, what have I just done? I have just painted myself with a woo-woo brush. <laughs> As have I. And I'm, I'm like, I'm dripping with woo-woo paint, you know, so I'll never undo my woo-woo-ness. But you know what was interesting? It was up about a week later, and I was, thinking, I was dreading it. Uh, when I do a UFO talk... Uh, my experience on YouTube type things was uh, about a third of the people watching and say, what the hell is that person? That person, a guy or a gal? She, that person doesn't know what the hell they are. And the other kind the narrative runs something like, well, they don't know what the gender they are. How can we trust their science? You know, I, 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 I see that on a lot of the YouTube presentations I've done. Okay. Uh, I, for your audience, I'm a post-op transsexual, but it happened 30 years ago. It's old news. Okay. I changed in my late 30s. I couldn't live with myself anymore. Okay. So um, I am who I am. Uh, I went into a monastery as uh, Cheryl, Miss Corporate 500. Okay. And uh, ended up in Buddhist nun robes with a buzz cut for seven years. Lived with, uh, ended up living with a bunch of Burmese monks because they, they liked my mixed gender. They thought that was fun. Um, but beyond that, the, the issue of, of all of this is I tried not to overlap it with the UFO reporting of trying to repeat, report people's sightings and do science and do the statistics and, and argue a case for disclosure and all that. That's been the thread of my column all these years. And like I said, I've only done about eh, three or four consciousness articles. Um, I've had people invite me to do more. Uh, now that I'm not at the New Times, I've had people ask me, would you write consciousness articles for um, our, our, our web page or something like that? And I've had a few invitations. You know, I am retired, but the funny thing is, I don't, I don't know how I ever found time to go to work because I'm so busy right now. I'm busier now than I was when I was going to, day, to a day job. As am I, as am I. <laughs> so, funny thing, how did we find time to go to work, you know? Yeah, I'm not retired, but I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I've like given myself over to this research and it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's remarkably rewarding and exciting at the same time. Boy, you know, you got to pay the bills. Yeah. Uh, well, let me give you, a, this is a new calculation. And now I'm, I'm working on a book right now. So, you know, uh, I have been doing 
every single shape. And what I'm doing is a 12-page dump on every single shape. And all I'm doing is I'm doing it by day and year. So across the top, 2001 to 2018, those are the columns coming down. And in, in the far left-hand column, it starts with January 1-1. And it goes down and goes through all 365 days or 366, depending upon the year. Uh, and I report all the shapes just by numbers uh, of the UFOs. I've done over half of them. And the book is going to be close to uh, over 450 pages, just putting all that, all the PDFs. We're building it, building it in PDFs. And you sent me some of those. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I think I sent you the triangle ones. Yeah. And uh, I, like I said, I'm about half through it right now. Uh, I know that's going to be another one of these books people are going to look at and say, oh, my God, pages of numbers, you know. But if you sit down with those things and you look at them real careful, you'll be looking at all these numbers and you'll see, you know, onesies, twosies, threesies, and then suddenly you see a, a tensies or fifteensies, you know, and they say, wow, what was going on that day, that year? And what's your sense? I mean, what are you seeing in these little uh, little blips in the data? Well, this is a technique I call forensic analysis of big data for, for UFOs. And uh, that's going to be kind of loosely a title for the book. Two or three different techniques for doing forensic examination of cluster studies, of, of clusters of, of all kinds of shapes, just like we'll say a flap in a particular state. I'll give you an example. In 2008, I printed a graph off from January to December 31st of just 2008 by day and magnitude. So there's a squiggly line looking like an oscilloscope, a squiggly line, a big spike in the middle where July 4th is, and it just squiggly line, right? I noticed a peak in the middle of August. I clicked on it to find out what the date was, and then I went back into the database, and I dumped that year and that date, all the sightings by state, and uh, there was like uh, 13 states, but because it was a big spike, but it the majority of it was in Indiana. Well, Indiana is kind of a lackluster state. It's it's down there in the 20s or 30s as far as the rank was concerned. Uh, only about 1,300 sightings a year kind of place, you know. And here they had a thing with 25 sightings in one day. Various shapes. But as we know, that could have been all the same shape, but people report different things. So I didn't care about the difference in the shapes. Just the fact that something remarkable happened. Then I went in and I pulled it out by county and city, and son of a gun, 12 were in Kokomo County. And of those 12, um, I'm sorry, I forget the exact number, but it was a very high number. No, 25 were in, in uh, Kokomo County, and 12 of them were in the city of Howard in Kokomo County, Indiana. Okay? This is just an example of the kinds of forensics you can do with big data. Uh, it's not going to help you if you want to do case studies and go vet that thing down to the fine detail and nut and bolt. This is to give you gen uh, interesting general trends of what kind of a flap was going on there. Okay. Again, this is what, uh, what we call forensic analysis of the sighting big data. It's not going to tell you who they are or where they're from or who's driving them, and it's not going to tell you anything about the hardware, but it does tell you an awful lot about patterns of behavior and where people have had certain flaps. Okay, I have found counties out there in the United States that have nothing most of the time. And suddenly, three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, one week – 
or one day they had a dozen or two dozen sightings. Okay, I'm finding little niches. So when people say to me about, oh, well, the hotspots like Roswell and everything, eh, Roswell is pretty lackluster, actually, because it had its day back in 1947. But look, from my desk, they don't rank very high. But you look at all these places that are supposedly ground zero, Kecksburg and all these places. There are places you've never heard of that have had some pretty significant events. They just haven't had the visibility. And in, in those places and the people reporting these and the people experiencing these things, I mean, you said it. If we go by the premise that the majority of the people who have UFO sightings, have, there's a probable contact experience. There's a probable abduction there. That's a bold statement. I can't back it up, but I, I don't know if it's the majority, but I suspect it's it's pretty high. And I mean, what was going on though in those towns at that time? But also, if you look at the um, the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation, and you know about them. Oh, very much so, yeah. And they had, what, 4,400 people. And uh, one of the things Ray Hernandez said to me that, uh, out at the Ozarks, him and I had a really long conversation one afternoon. And basically, I, I said, you know, everybody's coming back different, you know, with a different perspective. He says, hey, they went there as atheists. They come back spiritual. They go there as a hellfire and brimstone Bible thumper, and they come back spiritual. Um, they come, ba- they go there agnostic. They come back spiritual. He says, "ET's turning them all into mystics." When you were talking here, I had the what I wanted to end the show with is there's a blog post you did called "Love Thy Celestial Neighbor," and I highlighted a quote from Ray Hernandez, and it said, "Ray Hernandez of the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation told me recently." The ETs seem to be turning people into mystics. That was highlighted on my thing. I'm looking at the clock, and that's how I wanted to end the show. And you just said it for me. That is my sense, too. I think you could change the term from mystic to shaman to spiritual awakening to expanded consciousness. There's any number of terms. Any, any of those terms work just wonderfully. Yeah. We got this interview out of the way. At some point, I'm going to call you back on, and we're going to go way deep into this because you and I are on the same page there. And I also understand, I understand there's this need to want to be taken seriously, and that's and to be taken seriously, you would want to deal with numbers and data and science and stuff like that. But at the same time, I recognize just from the from the people contacting me, people are hungry for this, for this more mystical aspect. And the people who are having these experiences are often adrift because they are suddenly thrust into a realm of spiritual awareness, let's say, and they don't have any tools. And so they're going to turn to, to people like you and I. Okay. This has been remarkable. I look forward to talking more. Michael, thank you so much. You are very welcome. This has been a delight. Hey, this is Mike. I am chiming in after the editing. I, I said this earlier in the intro, but Cheryl and I went a bit over our time. And uh, at the very end there, you can tell we sort of cut it off kind of quick. We both realized we had gone over. Now, I'm glad we went over, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk at at more depth about some of the more esoteric ideas, some of her ideas on the more spiritual aspects of this challenging mystery. And I meant what I said about doing another interview with her at some point, where we could focus less on the data and statistics and more on the issues of consciousness. Now, I, I know we address it in the talk, but um, her book is easy to find on Amazon. You simply search out 
Cheryl Costa, UFOs, and it comes right up. She has also been working for a newspaper for many years doing this blog, or I guess more correctly, these weekly articles on UFOs, and uh, and th- these cover a wide range of topics. And these are all really wonderful little short essays. These will eventually be turned into a book. We discussed that in the talk. That book is not available yet, so there's no way to search that out. But, but I would but I would love to have her back when that book comes out. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.